Good morning, Woodland Hills. You have any morning crowd? I'll explain that here in a second. Hello, Padrishners. I feel like I'm in romper room. And I see Padrishners and I see... Well, the bad news is that these are already starting to get shorter. Oh, we've, we've, been, we've missed the peak. I had to mention that. I know, isn't that dumb? It's like, no, we're just getting warmed up. Don't think about that. Pretend I never said that. So here's the deal. We're in, in a series. Oh, by the way, I'm Greg Boyd, uh, teaching pastor here. And it's good to see all of you. Uh, the deal was, we're in a series called Loose Ends and uh, looking at tough passages of Scripture that we usually tend to gloss over and just sort of let dangle there with a question mark. That's why we call them Loose Ends. Tough passages, things that just don't seem right and things like that. Last week I dealt with a humdoozy, didn't I? Uh, that, that whole, if you weren't here for last week's message, I encourage you to get it. Probably the strangest sermon on circumcision you've ever heard. Certainly the strangest sermon on circumcision and Yahweh trying to kill somebody but being warded off by Zipporah. Probably the strangest sermon on that topic you've ever heard. So you might want to check it out. Uh, the deal is, is that, that, that Sandra was supposed to speak this weekend. I'm scheduled to be preaching at another church uh, tomorrow. I have been for a long, long time. And so Sandra was supposed to preach this weekend. But uh, she up and got sick. Probably God's dealing with some sin in her life or something. You know, I'm not going to... I don't know. I'm just saying. So... Uh, 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 so we thought the best way to handle this is to have me come in and, and do a Saturday night thing and then show this on Sunday morning. So folks, that's why I'm not there uh, on Sunday morning. Sorry. There are some advantages to coming Saturday because if, you know, this has happened a couple times where I'm here on Saturday and not Sunday. So maybe some of you Sunday folks should think about changing over here. We're small but mighty crowd. Arr. The holiest crowd there is, no doubt. And the most modest. And they get rowdy once in a while, too. That's kind of, that's kind of fun. So uh, I, I'm going to be uh, uh, jumping in here, and then Sandra will be plugged in into the series uh, a little bit later on. Now, it, it just so happens that one of the passages I was thinking about preaching on uh, that is certainly difficult and certainly controversial and caused a lot of confusion and harm happens to be a passage that has gotten kind of famous in the last week or so. Because... Uh, <laughs> There's this collective groan. Oh, oh, no. Romans 13, because it was quoted by uh, our Attorney General Jeff Sessions in support of a governmental policy. Hey, no heckling and a servant. Everyone's Simadana. But it was used to justify this, this policy of, of splitting apart uh, the parents and children of, uh, of these illegal immigrants. And um, so that makes this a rather hot topic and a teaching opportunity if we all keep open minds and keep thinking kingdom. So I'm going to pray here. Father, I pray right now in Jesus' name that you will free us to hear, uh, not to be defined by the categories of our toxic political culture, not to have politicized perceptions of things, but God, give us Jesus' eyes. So that we don't see a political problem, we see people. And, and, and God, give us a Jesus heart so that, that, that um, is, is able to press through all the toxic stereotypes and all of the, all the cloudiness and fog and confusion and just to do what you called us to do, which is to love. And uh, give us an understanding of this, of this passage, this powerful passage, intriguing but sometimes troubling passage. Open our eyes. To be your unique, distinctive, loving kingdom people. Set apart to be a light, a city set on a hill. A light to darkness. Showing people an alternative way of thinking, of living, of serving 
Jesus Christ, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Okay, so here's the thing. As we say with some regularity here, we're very committed. We have to be very committed on, on, on uh, making sure that, that uh, we don't get sucked into the toxic polarities of our current political climate, which have just gotten so venomous, so ugly, so, I, I, it's just really, really bad. Everything hangs on our not being sucked into that, inviting that divisiveness into the church. And we are committed, and have always been committed, and need to be committed to honoring the ambiguity of, of the political realm. Most of the matters that are dealt with in the political realm are matters about which good and intelligent moral people can disagree. We just have to acknowledge that. That's, that's, that's normal. Um, and, and so there's a legitimate debate that could be had over just how strong our borders should be or how porous our borders should be, as it is on, on every political issue. Can good, intelligent people, it's, it's complex. There's a lot of variables, and they can disagree upon that. That's just what it is. We also have to remember that we must never let what we think government should do interfere with what we are called to do. Amen? Uh, don't ever confuse the, the, the call of government with the call that we have as distinct kingdom people. Whatever government does or doesn't do, or whatever you think government should do or should not do, um, we as a church are called to reflect God's uh, unfathomable, indiscriminate love towards all people at all times in all situations. No if and buts, fine print, variable exception clauses, footnotes, or anything of the sort. Right? It's just indiscriminate love. That's our call. That's what's on us. And that's especially true of the call to, to love the stranger and the foreigner. In fact, this is a dominant theme we find throughout the Bible. There's a special emphasis on this. We're going to love all people at all times indiscriminately. I love them the way uh, Christ has loved us, sacrifice for them the way Christ has sacrificed for them, care about them the way Christ has cared for us. Uh, and there's a particular emphasis for those who are outsiders and strangers. Uh, it's a theme that runs throughout the Bible. For example, in Ezekiel 22, we find the Lord saying this. He says, you shall not wrong or oppress the resident alien, for you are aliens in the land of Egypt. You, you know what it's like to be an outsider in a foreign country and to be treated poorly. Well, don't ever do that to others. Learn from the negative stuff that came your way. And you find this motif all over the place. It's a strong emphasis. In fact, I don't ever expect our government or any government to be Christian, to turn the other cheek or to love enemies or anything like that. But if you must insist on bringing up the Bible on this issue, and it's, the door's been open now, uh, well, there's a whole lot the Bible has to say about hospitality and about immigrants and things like that. Um, in fact... Most people don't realize this, but the, one of the number one reasons why nations come under judgment in the Old Testament is because they refuse to welcome the stranger, or they treat the stranger poorly, or they won't share what they have with the stranger. One of the, the top reasons why nations get judged. So yes, you want to have a Bible discussion. What does the Bible say about this? Well, let's have it. Uh, there's a whole lot of other verses I, I would quote other than Romans 13. We'll deal with Romans 13, but I'm just saying... The Bible has a lot to say to this because God has a heart for these people. And as often happens in the New Testament, this, 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 you, you still have this emphasis on hospitality. You find it in Hebrews and Romans and, and the, the call to be welcoming to the outsider. It's just one of the fundamental virtues of the New Testament. But it also takes on a spiritual kind of role. And, and it does it in this way. Um, 
we're told that we were once foreigners and outsiders to the things of God. We were strangers. We were aliens. Uh, but in that state, God did whatever God could do, all that could be done, all that was metaphysically possible to be done, in order to welcome us in and make us insiders. Um, we, were, we were hopeless outcasts, but, but because of the love of Jesus Christ and what he did for us on Calvary, he has made us, he has made us insiders. Uh, we, we, were, we were voluntary citizens of the kingdom of darkness. We got ourselves in that, that place, but through the love and the precious work of Jesus Christ, uh, he has made us citizens of the kingdom of God. Citizen in full standing, not just kind of with a hopeful track towards citizenship. We are made citizens of the kingdom of God, though we were in the, uh, citizens of the kingdom of darkness. We were enemies of God. Jesus did whatever could be done and whatever needed to be done in order to make us friends and to even adopt us as his children and to bring us into God's own household. And when we were blind, Jesus did all that could be done to open our eyes so that we may see. And when we were dead in our sin, Jesus Christ did all that needed to be done and all that could be done in order to bring us back to life. When we were poor and in poverty, Jesus did all that he could do to share God's wealth with us. When we were absolutely, utterly outcast, distant, destined for destruction, Jesus did all that could be done, all that needed to be done to share God's eternal life with us. And when we were in this hopeless, outcast state, not only did God make us insiders, he made us inside one of the insiders. He, he put us in Jesus Christ. It's about as inside as you can get. And in that place in Jesus Christ, we are now the recipients of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. The whole inheritance of God, the wealth of God, is now shared with us. That's God's heart for the outsider. And see, in, in light of that love, in light of that love, how could we not well up with love towards those who also find themselves as outsiders in this world. How can we not have, have, have a compassion and a heart for folks who find themselves in this position? In fact, Jesus tells us to go and do likewise. After, after going through all he went through to become a human being and die on the cross to make us insiders, through Paul he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Follow this example. Uh, you love the way I love. Live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. In fact, it's just so close to God's heart that Jesus personally identifies with those outsiders. Matthew 25, where he says, And so far as you did to the least of these, you took care of me when I was naked, when I was homeless, when I was on the street, when I was friendless, when I was in prison. Uh, and insofar as you did that, you did it to me. So this clearly is an issue that is very, very important to God. It's, it's, here's the thing. Think whatever you want about what America should do about borders. That's fine. That's a complex issue. That's tough. We can talk about that. Have your opinion. But don't ever allow your opinion about what government should do to compromise your call to do what God's called you to do and to be who God's called you to be. It's so vital that we don't let our opinions about the kind of borders we should have, if we should have borders, don't let that issue, which is a kingdom of the world issue, cloud your, your ability to see illegal immigrants as people. If, if when you think of illegal immigrants, you see a problem, uh, you see an issue that needs to be resolved, you see a threat, whatever, you're, you're seeing them through political categories, through political lenses. But you're called to be a, a kingdom person before you're ever called to have a political opinion. Amen? And, and, and it's so vital that we are able to, we have those opinions, but we have to bracket them in order to see these illegal, illegal immigrants as people, 
as people who are loved by God, as people for whom Jesus died, as people who have an unsurpassable worth because Jesus paid an unsurpassable price to them, as a people that we are called to replicate God's love towards, to sacrifice towards, to welcome, to, to embrace, to ascribe unsurpassable worth to them by how we think about them, speak about them, speak to them, and how we treat them. That's our kingdom call. Whatever, whatever you think government should do or shouldn't do, whatever, that's fine, but this is our call. To be in this zone, to love folks like this. Don't see a problem. Don't see a voting issue. No, see a person. You know, Jesus, see, this is the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees. When the prostitute crashes their party, they see a problem. Uh-oh. We got, we got, this is going to hurt our reputation. This could get the rumor mill going. They see a problem. Jesus sees a woman. That's why he refers to this woman. You know, she, she has such great love. You, you, Simon, you, you, you didn't treat me like this. This is Luke 7. Seven here. You didn't show me the kind of love and kindness and hospitality, hospitality that she did. Uh, and yet you, you look down on her in judgment. Jesus sees her through the eyes of love. We're called to see the world like that, to love like that. And if your heart has been open to the, 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 the plight of these immigrants, uh, especially the last month or so, well, then your heart has been breaking the last month or so. I think, I, this is, I think, the kingdom perception. We're to hurt with those who hurt. We're to be willing to enter into the state of another that's different than ourselves. That's what love is. Love isn't some kind of abstract sort of rule. You don't theoretically love. To love means you're ascribing unsurpassable worth to the person, which means they're worth thinking about. They're worth entering into. That's what love is. How do I know that? Because that's what God did for us. It's incarnational. It's always incarnational. It's always embodied. It's always concrete. And so to see the world this way is to see the concrete person, to enter on the inside, to hurt with those who hurt. And, and, and to see what's been done the last month or so, it, it, it breaks your heart. In the name of zero tolerance, possibly as a deterrent for other immigrants, we have been, this country has been separating children as young as 18 months from their parents. Uh, and the parents don't know when, most usually don't know when they're going to see their child again, or even in some cases, or where the child's going to be, or if... They're ever going to see the child again. Some worry about that. It, it's enter into that. What would it be like to have you've just left one nightmare back there in El Salvador because the gang was going to rape and your daughter and recruit her into sex trafficking? So you leave that nightmare, come here to the land of opportunities, and find an, an even worse nightmare. Uh, enter into that. Enter into that. It's it's whatever policy issues you have. That's fine, but. Barricade that to see this, to, to enter into the kingdom perception of this. Now, there has fortunately been this outcry, on both from Republicans and from Democrats, the vast majority, in fact, of Americans, see this as, as shocking, as something that's morally repugnant, as a form, I mean, you're terrorizing children and parents as a motive to stop other immigrants, that, that, that could be called terrorism. You're motivating with terror, and so there's been this outcry, so the policy has been put on hold, um, and thank God for that, but it's still a complete mess. We've got over 2,300 kids down there in no man's land. Uh, 500 have been uh, connected with parents, but we still have roughly 2,300 uh, that, that, that not only are they not connected, but in some cases, we're not sure how they can get connected, and so we need to be keeping these people in prayer. But see, this is what brings us to the, 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 the topic for today, the, the passage of today. Because in the course of defending this policy, uh, the Attorney General uh, cited Romans 13. 
And so I want to look at this. I'm going to look at the interpretation of this, and then I'm going to give an alternative interpretation of this. Here's, here's uh, our Attorney General. And I would cite you to the Apostle Paul and his clear and wise command in Romans uh, 13 to obey the laws of the government because God has ordained, ordained the government for his purposes. Orderly and lawful processes are good in themselves, consistent fair application of law is in itself a good and moral thing, and that protects the weak. It protects the lawful. Our policies that can result in short-term separation of, of families is not unusual or unjustified. All right. So here's the thing. I, I want to be real clear. I do not have any personal beef with, with uh, our Attorney General, with Jeff Sessions. I I love, believes the best, and hopes the best for all people, and I believe he's trying to do the best thing according to as he understands it. Uh, I, I'm sure he, he's a, a wonderful person. Don't know him personally, but I'll tell you this: I know he's got a tough job. I, I know that you could not pay me enough money to be in his shoes, and I think anyone who knows what kind of shoes he's in would probably agree with that. He, he, he's he's got a tough road to toe there. Um, my, but my beef is with his use of Romans 13, and I don't even blame that on him. Because the interpretation that he's giving, given here is, is, has been the standard interpretation, not the only one, but the, pretty much the standard interpretation since the church came into power in the 4th century and found that Romans 13 made a very good device for keeping people subject. Because it says God's ordained governments, and therefore to resist a government is to be resisting God. Um, and so I, I, don't, I don't blame him for that. But I have to take issue with that interpretation. And the reason is this. Because I am an ambassador of Jesus Christ, and if you're a believer, so are you. And as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, I care about Jesus' PR department a lot. Which takes a lot of hit these days, I think you'd probably agree. And, 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 and see, this, the Bible here is being used to defend a, a policy which the majority of Americans, at least, have thought is seen as morally repugnant on both sides of the aisle. And, and th therefore, you're inviting people to see the Bible as morally repugnant. I'm not going to believe in that Bible. If, if it supports this kind of thing, well, forget about it. And since I don't want people to be thinking the word of God is morally repugnant, I have a vested interest in, 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 in refuting that interpretation and providing an alternative, and that's what's going on here tonight. What makes this particularly interesting and challenging is that at first glance, it can look like the Attorney General's interpretation and that standard interpretation is the correct one, okay, at first glance. So we're going to have to dig into this. So let's read at least parts of Romans 13. Here's what Paul says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God or ordained, some translations have. The word there is tasso. Everyone say tasso. I'm not going to explain it now, but remember it because I'm going to come back to it. Tasso. Therefore, whoever resists, now the word there is antitasso. Right? Antitasso. Everyone say antitasso. I'm not talking about your aunt named Tasso. This is, this is the, a word to, to resist authority. Okay? Because God tassoed the government. You don't want to be resisting the tasso of the government. Because uh, if you do that, you're resisting God, what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And then a few verses later, Paul says, For the same reason you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants busy with this very thing. 
Pay to all what is due them, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. All right. So we're to obey all government because it's been ordained by God. So to resist government is to resist God. And the assumption here then is this. If that's true, then, then the fact that, that, that Donald Trump is our president must mean that God has ordained Donald Trump to be our president. And so if God's ordained Donald Trump to be president, then he shouldn't be resisting the laws that he comes up with. And that's been the standard interpretation since the 5th century. Now, we always say that when you, when you confront texts that seem like, just, is that, they, they make you go, huh? It seems a little bit off. It seems strange. They're just like, is that right? As I said last week, it's so important that we just are honest with questions. Start asking questions. Just like, oh, Lord, like, if that's true, what about this? Like, for example, um, if that is the case, if, if it's true that all governments are ordained by God and therefore to resist the governments resist God, if that's true, well, then you better not celebrate July 4th as an American Independence Day. Because if that interpretation is true, what we did in 1776 was, was not right. Uh, that shouldn't have happened. And as a matter of fact, if you go back and read the literature at the time, the British were constantly telling us that. You can't rebel against us. We're the ones in charge. And that means God put us in charge. And so if you resist us, you're resisting God. And that actually worked pretty well for a while until the taxes started getting a little too high. And pretty soon people started saying, listen, I don't know what Paul meant by that, but it's just stupid that, that, that a little island is taxing a continent and we're done with this. And so, boom, there goes the war. But, but uh, if, if, if this is your interpretation, we didn't, then we were resisting God when we did that and we shouldn't be celebrating an act of, of resisting God. All right. Uh, it goes deeper. If this is the correct interpretation, well, then does that mean that everybody who was resisting Hitler, who had his 10 million people put to death in, in, in death camps, that everyone who was resisting Hitler was resisting God? Or what about Joseph Stalin and the 30 million people that he put to death? I mean, if this is true, then every sick, demented form of government that's ever existed has been instituted by God, and, and therefore we must subject ourselves to, to that, and anyone who resists is resisting God. In fact, it can go deeper than that. I mean, if, if all governments are ordained by God, then, then was, was, was Moses' parents resisting God when they saved Moses instead of going along with Pharaoh's uh, uh, law to put the new kids to, to, to death? Or was Mary and Joseph, uh, were they resisting God when, when, when they ran from Herod? Because Herod was ordained by God, according to this interpretation. And so they should have submitted this and said, oh, okay, you want the two-year-olds killed in Bethlehem? Here's our son. No, they resisted. And I, for one, I'm glad that they resisted. But it leaves the question, what do you do with this, this, this sort of a passage? Then you have this, this well, what about the apostles? When, when the, the apostles were willing to defy laws to preach the gospel. So we, we find this in Acts 5. It says, we, we gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, in the name of Jesus. This is the, the ruling authorities here. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and, and, and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than any human authority. Now think about this. That answer is, is, is a godly answer. We, we must resist God, and, or we must obey God, not, not just human authorities. That presupposes that not all human authorities are ordained by God. But it presupposes that insofar as governments are passing laws that are not just, or at least that are blocking the gospel, to that degree, we're to regard them as merely human authorities, and we're to obey God rather than them. And so it can't be the case that all human authorities, are, as they are, have been ordained by God, and that we're, we're, uh, we're resisting God if we resist them. And the final thing I'll just say about this is that 
If all our governments are ordained by God, instituted by God, we'll talk about what that means here in a little bit, but if that's the case, what do you do with the whole New Testament testimony about how Satan is the one that is over the governments of this world, in fact, is, that is, is the chief influencer throughout the world on, on all matters? So during the temptation narratives, Jesus says, or Satan says this, he shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world with all their glory, all their splendor, and then he says to him, to you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it's been given to me, over to me, and I can give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. What's interesting, Jesus here doesn't say, oh, you're exaggerating your authority and power. He, he, he grants that Satan is telling the truth. As a matter of fact, everything Satan says in this temptation narrative is technically true. He just is always trying to get Jesus to apply it the wrong way. But it's true that Satan owns these, these kingdoms of the world and all their glory and can give it to whoever he wants. How does that square with the idea that every government has been ordained by God? And, and this is what you find throughout the New Testament. You know, it, that Satan is seen as being the chief polluter and influencer in this world. Paul calls him the God of this age and the principality and power of the air. Jesus three times calls him the ruler, uh, the archon, which, which means the top ruling authority in a, in, a, in a given region. Three times calls Satan the, the ruler of the air. Uh, John goes so far as to say that Satan has control of the entire world. So it's not surprising when he claims to have control over governments because he has some kind of control over the entire world. How do you fit that in with this, I, this interpretation of Romans 13? In light of all of these questions, I think it's safe to say something else is going on. Uh, something is off with this interpretation, all right? So, to get at what's off with this interpretation, we got to go way back to the beginning. Uh, back to Genesis 1. And just notice this, that uh, in Genesis 1, human beings are created and we're given authority over the earth and the animal kingdom. But we weren't given authority over each other. We're told to rule the earth and the animal kingdom, but we're not told to rule each other. It seems like in God's design, we would have one ruler, and that would be God. Um, and then our job is to submit to him and then carry out his will on earth as it is in heaven as it concerns the job responsibilities that he's given to us. Uh, but it's only after the fall that people begin to get this fallen impulse to lord it over others. That I, my views are superior to your views, and I care more than you, so I should be able to impose my will on yours. You don't see that yet because you're inferior, but someday maybe you will. And, and, and that's, that's how the politics of the world has always worked. And so that, but that happens only after the fall. This is why early on, Israel, Israel wasn't supposed to have a king. In fact, they didn't have a king. Because God wanted to show the world, the other nations, that what it's like for a people to not have a human ruler, but to only look to God as their ruler. He wanted to put that on display. Now, unfortunately, uh, the Jews began to get scared and nervous, and, and, and Samuel was dying, so they weren't sure they could connect with God as well anymore. And so they start saying, we want a king. We want a king of the other nations. We're scared. We want a king to fight for us and get a model army. Please give us a king. We want a king. So finally, God says, fine. He accommodates. He acquiesces. But here's what he says to Samuel when he, when, he, when he acquiesces. He says, Listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. They've rejected me. Think about the implications of this. In choosing to have a human king, you're choosing not to have God as king. In choosing to put your trust in this human or this human system, you're not putting all your trust in God as king. To, re, to, to choose to have a king is to reject God as king. 
Um, and, 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 and so what that means is that if, if Jesus is your Lord, he is your only Lord. Uh, all your allegiance is due to him. I sometimes read and sometimes hear people say things like this, especially in America. No one does this in North Korea, China, or Russia. But in America, they'll say things like, well, we have dual citizenship. We have dual obligations. And we have to balance these loyalties. Uh, we have to balance these allegiances to God and to country. Now, they would never occur, encourage a Christian North Korean to do that. But the assumption here is that our country is the godly one, so we have to balance these things. But I submit to you that, folks, if you're a follower of Jesus, there ain't no balancing act that you're supposed to perform. There's not a dual citizenship, dual allegiance kind of thing. No, if, if, if Jesus Christ is your Lord, he is your only Lord. You've got one Lord. You cannot serve two masters. You've got one Savior. You've got one creator, one you answer to, one president, one boss. It's not Donald Trump. It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. He's your only authority. He's the only one that we're under. Everything else is illegitimate. It's, the whole government system is predicated on rejecting God as king. It's all predicated on rebellion. And, and so as people who have come out from that, uh, uh, our only allegiance is to Jesus Christ. Now, he tells us to submit to government as much as possible. And so we should submit to government as much as possible. Uh, but we don't do it because we, government, we think government actually has authority over us. If we're thinking straight, we do it because God has authority over us and God tells us to get along with government as much as possible. Mainly because it's not worth fighting over. <laughs> you know, don't get distracted. Keep your eye on the prize. Do the kingdom stuff. But... Uh, um, our, our allegiance is singular. Our hope is singular. Our trust is to be singular. So if there is a law that, that, or a policy that is passed that conflicts with our call to be a follower of Jesus, we are, like the early apostles did, we are to say we must obey God and not any other human authority. So the very fact that, we've, we, that, that this fallen world needs governments... Uh, is, it shows its fallenness. It shows that, 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 that we're, we're a, a nation and a country and a world that has rejected God. It's predicating on rejecting God as king. But since we are in a fallen world, and since we do need these governments, chaos would result without them. I mean, the Attorney General is right. Law and order is inherently a good thing. That's a, that's a positive thing. And that needs to be enforced. So, so the fact that we have this well, what happens is God says, okay, I'll use that. God uses everything. He's at work in everything. And so God's going to now use governments for a good purpose. And that brings us to, back to, to, to Romans 13. Uh, let's read verse 1 again. Paul says, there's no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted, tasso, by God. Okay, all authorities from God. That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. But it means just what it says. All authority is from God. It doesn't mean anything more than that. It just means that it, it originates from God. Look, we all have some degree of authority. Uh, you have say-so. Uh, through your choices, you get to influence things. You have a certain degree of say-so over what comes to pass. That's your authority, your domain of authority. You've got people who maybe listen to you. You've got, you, know, you get to influence things. That's your authority. And that authority, whether it's a lot or whether it's small, it comes from God. Because God's the creator of the world and he's all-powerful, so any sort of authority he gives away, it comes from him. So the authority comes from God, but how you use that authority, that's up to you. God has a purpose in giving it to you. He's hoping that you'll bring your authority in line with his authority so that now God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But he doesn't make you do that. God can have that purpose, but it doesn't mean that, that how you use it is, is, is in accordance with God. Um, so he's the source of, 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 of all that authority, but he's not the source 
of what people do and what angels do with that authority. And then Paul says, for all governments have been instituted by God. Tasso. Now this word tasso is a very important one. It has the connotation of filing something or to order something. Or it could be to appoint as for a task. To file something. Uh, John Howard Yorder uses this analogy of a librarian who files books. Knowing, knowing what kind of book this is, uh, the book belongs here or the book belongs here. You're ordering books. You're filing books. Okay, they, they're meant to carry out a certain task so they belong here. But it doesn't mean the librarian likes the books. Maybe the librarian hates the books. But given that they're the kind of books they are, they go here. That, Paul is saying, is what God does with governments. Or it also has a connotation of to appoint for a task. Um, it's a little bit like this. In the early church, uh, some false teachers got in, got, got, got in and, and began to teach that all male Christians, whether you're Jew or Gentile, you need to be circumcised. And this big controversy uh, resulted. And so here's what it says. Uh, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed, that's the word tasso, to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. They were appointed. They were assigned a task. But notice this. Uh, it doesn't mean it was God's will for these people to come up with this false teaching. It doesn't mean that it was God's will for this controversy to break out. It's just that given this controversy and given this false teaching, the church decided to appoint Paul and Barnabas for this purpose. Given that purpose. Not that we like any of this, but given that this is what it's like, well, this is the purpose that, that would be good for you to do. And notice this. The fact that the church appointed them for this purpose, Tasso, doesn't mean that they, they would agree to do it. They, they, they could have said, no, we don't want to go there if they wanted to. It still would be true that, the, that the, the church appointed them to do this, but that doesn't mean they have to do it. And then if they're going to do it, it doesn't mean that they're going to do it well. They could do it well. They could do it poorly. See, it, it, Tasso doesn't say anything about what happens as a result of this appointment. It just says it was appointed this way. And so also, I think what Paul's getting at here is this. God, it was never part of God's ideal will that we'd even have governments, let alone sword-wielding governments. Governments that hold law and order on the basis of threats. Uh, that was never God's ideal will. And, and this passage doesn't mean that God, uh, uh, that, that all, all governments are going to carry out the appointment that God gives them. All it means is that given that we live in a fallen world where there's these sword-wielding governments, governments are going to wield swords. In fact, you can make the case, Jacques Ollol does this in his book about violence, that, that you, couldn't, you couldn't survive as a nation unless you were willing to resort to violence to keep uh, the threatening forces uh, against you uh, outside your walls uh, at, at bay and to keep law and order inside. So being a nation and being violent seems to kind of go hand in hand in this fallen world. Given that reality, God doesn't like that, but given that reality, and they're going to use swords, but given that, God's, God says, look, at, I, I, it, it, since that's the case, I'm going to assign a task here to these governments. I'm going to, I'm going to appoint them for something. And the task he assigns them is to punish wrongdoers and to keep sin in check. Basically, he, he sees that in this fallen world, there's a lot of people who won't do the right thing for the right reason. They only will do the right thing because they'll get caught. They might get caught if they do the wrong thing, and, and they don't want to get punished. So it's this external motivation. God says, okay, I can use these governments for that end. Even though they're predicated on sin, even though they're predicated on rebellion, even though they're, they're under the strong influence of Satan and, and there's corruption there, 
Despite that, God is not above saying, I will get my hands dirty and I will be involved influencing these, these, these governments, trying to push them in the direction of maximizing good and minimizing evil. It's, it's an ultimate example of, of God bringing good out of evil. God bringing good out of evil. But it doesn't mean that he approves of these things or that he created these things at all. It just means that he's willing to use these things. And then Paul says this in verse 2. Let's look at it again. Whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed. So follow this. Whoever resists authority, anti-tasso. Now God, Paul just told us what the tasso was. The tasso is God's appointed purpose for these governments. To maximize good, to minimize evil. Antitasso is resisting that. So he's saying, don't resist God's tasso. <laughs> don't be antitasso. And so if a government is doing God's tasso, I'm butchering the grammar here, because the Greek and the English don't, don't carry over well, but you get what I'm talking about. If a government's doing God's tasso, if they are actually carrying out justice, uh, though God hates the fact that they got to resort to violence and all of that, and there's hierarchies, whatever, but... At least they're being used to carry out some justice. And so if they're doing what they're supposed to do, don't resist them in that. Because if you do, you're resisting God's tasso. But if the government's not carrying out God's tasso, then you're not being anti-tasso, anti-tasso in resisting it. Are you following this? In fact, if, if a government's being anti-tasso, it's, it's not carrying out God's tasso. It's, 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 it's not carrying out a law and order. It's, it's using it for wrong purposes. Well, then the government itself is the one that's anti-tasso. It's rejecting God's tasso. So it's anti-tasso. Which means that God's people must reject it because we're totally for tasso. <laughs> so it's like I'm speaking in tongues up here. Tasso, tasso, tasso. No, it's tasso, anti-tasso. No, do you see the logic of this? So it's, it's, it's the purpose that defines whether or not we reject or, or submit to something. Is it carrying out God's purpose? And, and, and if it's not, then, then we must obey God rather than any human authority. Amen? And we have an obligation to resist that. Ultimately, folks, the, 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 our, our calling is very straightforward and singular, which is why it can cut through political fog like a laser knife if we'll let it. We've got really one law that we abide by. And Paul himself talks about this. Uh, a few verses after his discourse on the state in Romans 13. Here's what he says. He says, The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment you might come up with, it's summed up in, in, in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Uh, love is the fulfilling of the law. If, if, if you get love down, everything else you need to get down will be gotten down. If you don't get love down, it doesn't matter what else you do get down. You haven't gotten anything worthwhile down. Um, our, our, our call is to love our neighbor as ourself. Our call, Paul sums it up in Ephesians 5 when he says, live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Our, this is the one law. Just do this one thing. To, to live in love. And love is defined by Jesus Christ giving his life for us. So we are to love and sacrifice for all people at all times and all situations, though if and buts, maybe's exception clauses. Uh, we, we're to live in that. It's as long as you're breathing, as long as you've got any brain waves, as long as you've got any heartbeat, it's the right time to love like Jesus loves. Once you die, you're off the hook. But right now, it, it's, if you're alive, you get to live in that love. That's our one call. And, 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 and so what, what that entails is, is this. It means that, 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 that uh, to the degree that there is anything in government policies or anything in the culture that is contrary to affirming the worth of people, to loving people, uh, to that degree, we have to resist that. 
that, that, to the degree that it's, it's anti-tasso, we have to reject that. To live in love means you are, you, 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 you are pushed back on everything that is not love. Anything that, that does not express love towards people, that doesn't express the worth of people, anything in the culture or in politics that dehumanizes people, that's something that we're, we, we're to reject. We have to reject it if we're going to live in love the way Christ loved us and gave his life for us. And it doesn't matter, folks. It doesn't matter whether the person is legal or illegal, or whether they're black or white or Hispanic or Native American or Asian or whatever. It doesn't matter whether they're rich or they're poor or whether they got high status or no status whatsoever. It doesn't matter whether they're a personal friend or a personal enemy or a national friend or a national enemy. Our job is to love day and night, 24-7, no off buttons. Amen. Every other consideration is utterly, utterly, utterly irrelevant. Any, any, any attempt to bring in a but what about means that you, just, you haven't got it yet. <laughs> There's no but what about here. This is the all-defining task of the kingdom. Now, the primary way that we do this, the primary way that we resist things in the culture, in the political system that aren't in line with, with God's will, the primary way we do that is not by giving our opinion about what government should do. Undoubtedly, you've got those opinions. But that's not the primary way that we do this. The primary way that we manifest love and resist all that's not love is by how we live. It's about what we do. Uh, what, what impact does it make in our life individually and co collectively? Regardless of what government does or doesn't do or what you think government should or should not do, our call is, is, is our God-given tasso is to serve and welcome and love on and subscribe worth to all people, including illegal immigrants. Uh, it, 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 it's regardless of what government does or doesn't do or what you think government should or should not do. Our tasso, our call, is to not, tell, to, to not wait for government to do it, uh, but rather to, for us just to do it. It's our call to do what Jesus did while he was here on earth because we're the body of Christ. It's our call, and we're empowered to do this, and it's our joy to be able to sacrifice, to feed people who are hungry, and to give clothing to people who are naked, and to, to provide homes for people who have no homes, and opportunities for people who have no opportunities. It's our job. Since everybody has unsurpassable worth, we reflect that they're worth caring about. Uh, the the, the at-risk youth, uh, teenager, ask the question, what can we do to improve the, pro the prospects of the future? What can we do to help provide some job training, perhaps, or help them get through school, maybe uh, after-school mentoring programs? It's our job to care about the incarcerated, because Jesus says he's one of them. It's our job to care about the outcasts, because Jesus says he's one of them. It's our job to fight racism. Uh, and by, by forging relationships that cross racial lines, ethnic lines, and by striving to have a community that celebrates diversity in every possible form. It's our job to care about those who everyone else doesn't care about, those who are the most judged, those who are the most scorned by the society as, as a whole. And see, as we live out that law, that one law that we've got, it's very, very simple. As we live this out, now the church will, will become a city set on a hill. It'll become a beacon of light in, in a world of darkness. And the contrast between what we, the way we live and, and treat each other and treat others, the contrast between that and the world is the main selling point of the kingdom. Contra everything hangs on the contrast. And this is what God has called us to be, a contrast society. A group of people that, that just look different and act different and think different. Why? Because we have a different king. And, 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 and we're, we're citizens of a different kingdom. And we're to see the world in a different way. So the primary way is by how we live. How we individually and collectively live. How we sacrifice individually and collectively uh, for the good of others. But there is, I think, also, it's not a primary way, but there is a place to speak. Jesus and Paul both didn't hesitate to speak to authorities uh, when the, the door was opened to them to do that. Um, 
it's, it's, a, it's especially the case, I think, given that we live in a governmental context that's given us a voice. In fact, in fact, theoretically speaking, at least, the government's supposed to be us. We, we, we are supposed to rule ourselves, theoretically speaking, anyways. Uh, but we have a voice. We have a say here. And this is especially important because we are called, uh, Lord, help me to say this succinctly. We're called to be incarnational. We're called to, to, to enter into the lives of others, not just those that we care about, not just those for whom it's natural to love, but rather for people that we don't even know, care about the stranger, uh, to, in, to, to enter into their experience, to let their experience affect us, to hurt with those who are hurting. We're called to do that. And that, that's sometimes got to inform what we speak about. Now, we've got to be careful on this. We've got to remain humble. We've got to always realize, and this is the dance here, that we are not smarter than anybody else when it comes to running the world, when it comes to knowing what's the right policy to have. We're not smarter than anybody else. And there's no moral superiority here at all. We've got to be careful that, that we respect the ambiguity of the whole political process. We've got to avoid being sucked into the toxic political atmosphere of our current political climate. And we don't claim to have any answers, not as a church. You may personally think you've got all the answers. Fine, wonderful. But, but we, we don't claim to be able to have all the answers on what, what's the right thing to do in this situation. It can be very complex. But the one thing we must have is a willingness to be incarnational, a willingness to enter into their experience, a willingness to see people as people when others might see, to see political categories and political problems. The one thing we've got to be willing to do is to enter into their experience and lend our voice to their ouch and say, this is wrong. Not that we have all the solutions in the world, but this is wrong. Ouch. So it may be that you're not an illegal immigrant. Maybe you're not an illegal immigrant. And maybe you believe that, that the U.S. needs to have really, really tight borders. Or maybe you believe that we don't need any borders. I don't care. But see, to, to see the world through the eyes of, of Jesus, to be incarnational means that, that that child who's being taken from the parent and the trauma they're going through and the trauma the parent's going through, we've got to be willing to enter into that. And, and to wonder what would that be like to empathize with that situation. We've got to be willing to set aside political categories and see people for whom Jesus died who have unsurpassable worth. And, and, and to, to, to do that means that that child is virtually our child. It happens to us. And so we're going to feel it as though it was happening to us. And that mother who's being terrorized, that's our sister. And, 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 and it, it, so the way we respond to it, it's got to come from this place of seeing the world through the eyes of Jesus. To say, to lend our voice to their collective, ouch, this hurts, this is, this, this is wrong. To not say that, you see, to not say that is to say something very loudly. Namely, you don't really care what happens to these people, which is to say these people aren't worth caring about. And nothing could be more antithetical to the kingdom message than that. Because if the kingdom message means anything, it's that everybody is worth caring about. Amen. Whatever your policy ideas are, no, this is your kingdom task. You may not be black or have any black children or grandchildren, but see, when yet another black youth is shot in the back running from police, that's got to be our child who just got shot in the back. And, and that's our brother and sister, who, who the parents now, who don't have that child any longer. And that's got to impact us. I'm not trying to fix everything, not trying to run the world or anything, but, but I, I've got to be willing to enter into that and give, lend my voice to this collective, ouch, this seems wrong. This is wrong. And say ouch with them. You may not be poor and, and, and homeless and hungry, but when there's yet another mother with two kids sleeping under the bridge one more night, our job is to, those are our kids and that's our sister, and we go, oh, something's wrong with this system. Just lend our voice to this, and this is wrong. And we're not, we're not smart, we don't have the answers, we don't know how to run the world. We, we, we wouldn't even agree on that if we started talking about that. We wouldn't agree. Of course not. But it doesn't matter one bit. 
We've been given a God-given tassel. We have a God-given calling that's unique and distinctive, and it's to love all others the way Christ loved us, full stop. It's to sacrifice for all others the way Christ has sacrificed for us, full stop. It's to enter in solidarity with others the way Christ entered into solidarity with us, full stop. Have your opinions, but that's our task. That's our job. That's our bullseye. Don't let anything possibly distract you from that. So Romans 13 doesn't justify this... this, uh, we're in charge, therefore God wants us in charge, therefore you must obey us. It, it, it's been used like that, because if you convince people that's true, you got it. Man, you, you've got power. But in fact, I, I don't think Paul's saying anything of the sort. Um, in fact, Paul wasn't a fan of the Roman government, really. It, it, the Roman government put him to death six years after he wrote this letter. And the Roman government made our government look like a Boy Scout thing. It was nasty. And yet, it, it, so, so Paul knew what, what he was talking about. But he saw God at work in this to bring about good out of evil and to bring about some law and order. To the degree that governments do that, we submit. Not because they have any authority over us, but because our, our authority tells us to. But when they don't, we have an obligation to not submit, to be, to, to be anti. Uh, if they're anti-tasso, we've got to be anti-them. So I want to end with this question. And, and uh, really look on the inside. The Holy Spirit helps to be honest. Have you... Whether you're in this auditorium or listening through podcasts, have you perhaps allowed the categories of our current political climate, have you allowed them to cloud your kingdom vision? Have you allowed it to compromise your ability and willingness to look into the eyes of the illegal immigrant and see the face of Jesus? Because Jesus says, insofar as you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. There's a constant pull, a constant tension, and it's demonic to be pulled into this divisive, toxic thing. It is what it is, but we have got to have a perception that's different. Are you willing, whatever your opinions may be, fine, but are you willing to let the plight of strangers in need impact you to the point where you hurt with those who hurt? Have you made an idol of some of your opinions? Are you willing to enter into solidarity with those who are hurting? Whether the illegal immigrant, whether the black family, whether it's the homeless family, whatever it may be. And then we have to ask this question always, we come back to this. Are we individually and are we collectively doing all that God calls us to do? To put on display this one law, to put on display the love of God to all its people. We just need to always come back to that and always be resubmitting that to God, saying, Lord, is there more that we're supposed to do or other people we're supposed to attend to? But that is the kingdom call. And our job is to obey it with passion and fervor. Keep your eye on the prize. Don't get distracted. Live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Would you stand? I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here. And if you're in any need of prayer, this afternoon or this morning, as the case may be. If you have any issue that could use prayer, I encourage you to come up here and pray with these folks. They'd love to minister to you. Uh, and if you're not a, a, a devoted follower of Jesus, I would encourage you to consider becoming one. And if you want to find out more about that, just come up here and talk to these folks, and they'd love to explain to you uh, what, what's involved in that. As we leave here, can we do it as a people who are above all else committed to following the way of Jesus and none other? to having our allegiance to Jesus and none other, and to living like Jesus and none other. If you're in agreement with that, say amen and go out and love your neighbor. God bless you guys. See you next week.